0: Good morning, and as Dick prayed, we're going to go back to our our book of Daniel, and we're almost done with this this marvelous book of the Bible. Today we're going to uh, approach one of the weirdest chapters in the whole Bible, and I hope we don't leave you weirded out, (laughs) but if you read it, oh boy, if you you read the 11th chapter of Daniel and you don't shake your head, something's wrong with you, you didn't read it very well, because it's a really interesting chapter of the Bible, to say the least. Um, Daniel is one of the most incredible people who's ever lived on the planet, and I didn't make that up. God did. God says uh, in his word several times that angelic messengers come to Daniel and say that God highly esteems him. So that's a pretty remarkable person if God says, I, I'm, I think you're really great. And uh, Daniel's that guy. He's amazing. And generally, um, God gives us gifts and things to the level that we can... Uh, uh, we can actually accept them and to the level that we can uh, take them in. There are very, very, very few people that have ever lived on planet Earth that they could handle the kind of information from God that was given to Daniel. There just aren't many. You don't want to know what he knew. But this man is so incredible that God gave him insights into the future. And that future is both extremely bad and extremely good. And Daniel, when he saw it, he has a very human reaction. He can't get out of bed for weeks, it says. He's so overwhelmed with what God told him about the future, and not just the future, about what happens outside of the realm that we can see in the spiritual realm. So today, we're going to look at um, Daniel as he looks forward into the future again, the 11th chapter of Daniel. Now, um, I'd like to begin with a word that I know all of you probably know. It's the word oxymoron. An oxymoron is a figure of speech in which two contradictory words, or, phrases are combined to produce a rhetorical effect by means of a concise paradox. So, you put two words that are opposites together, but the purpose of which is to strengthen the meaning of both of them. And they're used commonly. Here are some examples a big baby. Well, baby is small and big is big. Or an open secret. Passive aggressive. Of course, we use that all the time. An original copy. (laughs) I'm alone together. Deafening. Silence. Clearly confused. Or the living dead. (laughs) This one. Jumbo shrimp. Shrimp means little and jumbo means big. Jumbo fried shrimp. Or this one. Nothing is written in stone. (laughs) And of course, it's written on a stone. That's, of course, not true. I love this one. Good luck if you're driving down this street. What are you supposed to do? Stop and keep moving. Uh, They they mean the opposite, and yet the signs are right next to each other. Uh, There are tons of these. There are hundreds of these oxymorons, two opposite words put together for rhetorical effect. And today, I'm going to introduce to you another one that I think is really, it's clearly confusing. And it's simply profound, and that is future history. Now, of course, history means a documentation of the past. And future, of course, means that which has not yet taken place. But today we're going to be introduced in Daniel chapter 11 to future history. Now, you've heard me say many times, and as I will continue to say, that the Bible is primarily a book of history. That's what sets it apart from other religious books, is it's not the story of someone's mystical um, understandings or their enlightenment and dealing with uh, God or the gods. It's basically the story of things that happened here on this earth with real people, real time, and real places. And Daniel is a historical character, a character that constantly is mentioning dates and places. And today, what he's going to introduce us to is history, but it's history that's going to take place in the future after his time. And it's an incredibly unusual passage of Scripture, so much so that these things are true. Daniel chapter 11 is one of the most maligned, if not the most maligned, chapters in the whole Bible. Here's why. There are, in this one chapter, 135 prophecies. That's why, if you're you're gazing at it right now, have at it. Try reading that, baby. You're just going to be bamboozled by the first few sentences. There are 135 specific prophecies in this one chapter, covering a time span of about 200 years from the time of the Persians, that's Cyrus the Great, to the time of the Maccabean Revolt. That's when Hanukkah began for Jewish people and way beyond. Every historical prophecy in this chapter has come true precisely as prophesied. Now remember, there are 135 of them. Every single one has come true. How do we know? Because here are some of the, um, some of the historians. Polybius, Josephus, First and Second Maccabees, which are found in the Apocrypha. They can date every single one of these. And these are historians outside the Bible that corroborate what the Bible said. You can put names and dates to everything. But when Daniel wrote it, it was prophecy. Now you can see what the problem is. People who don't believe that prophecy is real say, this is not written by Daniel. This is not prophecy. This is history. This is somebody hundreds of years after Daniel's time that took his name and wrote it as if it's prophecy. But there's no evidence to that effect seems more likely that God gave to this man, Daniel, a picture of the future that is so strikingly accurate that it makes you just wonder what in the world is going on. Now, I I would honestly take 10 hours to try to explain it all to you, so I'm going to just give a very brief overview and then focus on just one section of it, because there's one section and one particular person in this prophecy that is extraordinarily important. For the rest of Biblical history as well as history that's still to be written today. And so, Daniel chapter 11. This is Charles Swindoll. This is what he wrote. From our perspective, that is the perspective of 2000, well, 2,500 years later. From our perspective, we can see that some of the events predicted have already been fulfilled. How many? Oh, about 135 of them. However, even those happenings that are now past foreshadow events that are still to come. By keeping this in mind, we will discover the full significance of what the angel presented to Daniel. Now remember, chapter 11 is part of one vision started in chapter 10, chapter 11, and next week we'll conclude with chapter 12. It's one vision given probably by the angel Gabriel to Daniel. So here is chapter 11. This is how it begins in verse 2. Now then, this is probably the Gabriel speaking. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Okay, this is written, we know, during the time of Cyrus the Great in the 500s B.C., Cyrus the Great was the greatest of all the Persian kings. After him, there were three other kings his son and his successors. The third one of these, it says, is, or the fourth one, is far richer than all the others. The the third one was Darius. Darius was the Persian king who attacked the Greeks at a battle of Marathon, and was soundly defeated. All of this is historically documented outside the Bible as well as in the Bible. Darius was defeated by the Greeks, and he came back to Persia with his tail between his legs. He was horribly, horribly humiliated. He was succeeded by a king whose name was Xerxes. You've heard his name, because if you've ever read the book Esther, his other name is Ahasuerus. He's the king. That king is far richer than all the other kings in the Persian Empire. He is, through taxation and through conquering many territories, he amassed an an incredibly large sum of money, and he's furiously angry, trying to, to go after the Greeks who have defeated his father. How rich is he? You know if you've ever read the Bible. Do you remember how the Bible, the book of Esther, begins? King Xerxes is throwing a feast for a huge number of feast people, and the feast lasts 180 days. Can you imagine being so rich that you throw a feast that lasts one half of a year? One feast. That's how rich this dude is. But he's not only rich, he is very, very angry. And so he now, trying to recover the honor of his father, he now attacks the Greeks. And he, with an army of 200,000, or no, 200,000 people. I think that's the right number. He attacks the Greeks and a, a huge navy, and he too is defeated by the Greeks. This is what it says. When he has gained power by his wealth, he'll stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. We know who these people are. We know what they did. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. By all accounts, this mighty king is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great then swept through from Greece heading to the east, country after country, going all the way to India and finally settled before he died in his early 30s in the city of Babylon. So this mighty king swept through and conquered the, the former Babylonian empire, the former Assyrian empire, now the Persian empire, and establishes this enormously large Greek empire. After he appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants. He has one son, and he has one brother. Those which should have been his heirs, and both of them are tutored by a very wise man. All three, the tutor, his brother, and his son, were murdered. And who then took over his kingdom? Well, no one could rule his whole kingdom. It was so incredibly vast. So what happened is his kingdom was divided among his four generals. And it says here, it will go, not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be rep- uh, uprooted and given to others. Now, it was divided into the four parts here. You see Cassander, uh, Lysimachus, the uh, the Seleucids, and the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies are Greek leaders in Egypt. The Seleucids are Greek leaders in Syria. The Lysimachus is Greek leaders in present-day Turkey or Asia Minor in that society. And Cassander is the Greek leader in Greece, but they're all Greeks. This is why, at the time of Jesus, the language that people spoke was Greek, not Hebrew, not Aramaic. It was Greek. Why? Because of Alexander. So now for the next hundreds of years, this whole region of the world, the Middle East, is going to be ruled by various countries, but all of them are Greek-speaking and of Greek culture. Now, if you look at the one, Ptolemy, there, and if you look at the one that says Seleucus there, those two are going to fight against each other for the next 200 years. And guess, well, there's the Ptolemaic Empire. That's in Egypt. And this is the Seleucid Empire. That's in Syria. Now, these two are going to fight for 200 years, and guess who's caught in the middle? Israel. Now, Israel's nothing. It's a little tiny country with very few people that's caught between these two great empires, both Greek-speaking, who hate each other's guts. So for a time, the Ptolemies, those are called the kings of the south, are going to take over the beautiful land, which you'll see in your Bibles. That's Israel. And then the Seleucids from the north are going to come down, defeat the Ptolemies. But in every one of these wars, who gets killed? The Jews. Why? They're caught in the middle. Because you see, from where that red arrow is going to the east, you can't go there. It's all desert. So everybody has, all the armies have to go through this little tiny strip of land about 40 miles wide, all of them, in order to fight each other. And they do it constantly for 200 years. Now, what you're going to read in in your Bibles uh, from uh, verse 2 through about um, verse uh, 20 is about the fights between these two kings, the kings of the south and the kings of the north. And we're going to skip that. We're going to skip it because I'm just going to hope that you can try to figure it out yourself. But now we're going to be introduced to one person. There's one person in this huge drama of history that Daniel sees as prophecy, but now we can see as history. There's one person who dominates the scene. This person is extraordinarily important. This is a bust of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and this bust is found in Berlin. We have it today. This is him. This man is extraordinarily important. In fact, the amount of space given to him in the book of Daniel outstrips all the other leaders, including um, um, Cyrus, and even to some degree, Nebuchadnezzar. This is the most important man. Now, he is a Syrian, he's a Seleucid, so he's from the country of Syria, and he defeats the the, the Ptolemies, those are the Egyptians, and let's see what happens. He, this is talking about the, 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 the Seleucid leaders, he will be succeeded by a contemptible person. Now, that's not a nice thing to be known. This is a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. Antiochus IV Epiphanes was not in line to be the the king. He was not the heir. He He had royal blood, but he was not in line to be the heir. What he did through intrigue is he took upon himself some military roles. He then defeated somebody, probably the Egyptians, in a battle, and through distributing money to his friends and other kinds of things, he succeeded in taking over the kingdom. His was not supposed to be, he was not supposed to be in that position. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue, which is what he did. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. Now what happened is, after Antiochus secured the kingship in the, let's call it Syria, He then went to war against the the, the Egyptians. And how did he get there? He had to go through Israel. He went through Israel, had a war against the Egyptians. The Egyptians had a much larger army, but the Syrians won. And not only did he defeat the Egyptians, he also had killed the high priest of the people of the covenant. Those are the Jewish people. He killed the high priest. Now, after he swept down and defeated the Egyptians in a battle, but it was not a decisive defeat, the two kings decided they were going to have peace talks. Here's what happened. After coming to an agreement with him, that's the Ptolemaic leader, Egypt, and the Seleucid leader from Syria, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He defeated the Egyptians and took plunder with him back to Syria. How did he get there? had to go through Israel. What did he do? He will distribute the plunder, loot the wealth among his followers. He will plot to overthrow the fortresses, but only for a time. What he did then as he went back from Egypt with a booty from, from the defeat of the Egyptians, he went back, he conquered, he destroyed part of the city of Jerusalem, he went back with, with, with booty from Egypt and Israel back to his people. He distributed the money among his people, taking some from the rich, giving to the poor. I guess his other name was Robin Hood. And now he's securely in power. But He's not yet happy. This, by the way, took place um, uh, in around the year 170. Then, he's not done. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. Remember, that's Egypt. That's the Ptolemies. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because the plot's devised against him. So now these two armies fight against each other again, and neither one can, the the, the Egyptians are losing the battle. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other. So they're going to sit down at the peace talks and both of them have their fingers crossed behind their backs because they both know they're lying because the end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. For whatever reason, he's going to go back. He doesn't have a decisive victory. He goes back to the north and he's just ticked. And so who do you t- when you're ticked, who do you take it off on? The dog. You kick the dog. When you're mad at somebody and you can't get b- even with them, you kick the dog. That's what he does. And the dog is the nation of Israel. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. whoops, um, I went too far. There. At the appointed time, he will av- invade the south again. Now he's gone back again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. So now, the Syrians have attacked the Egyptians again, but now a new power has entered, a fledgling power that is going to be extremely powerful, the Romans. The Romans come in now with ships from the western coastlands, and they come in to Seleucus, who is attacking and defeating the Egyptians, and they say, back off. And you know what uh, what, uh, Antiochus does? Antiochus says, let me think about it. And the Roman naval naval, uh, admiral, this is historical, he goes and he writes, he takes a circle and draws a circle around uh, Antiochus and says, you have until you get out of this circle to make your decision. Because now he's about ready to defeat the Egyptians. The Romans step in and stop him. And they said, you have got to decide now that you're going to stop the battle and go home. And He doesn't want to get in a battle with the Romans. So he goes home. Now, how does he get home? If you're in Egypt, you know anything about your geography? He's in Egypt. The Romans have just stopped him. Helping the Egyptians, he's going home So where is he going to go home? How does he get there? He goes through Israel. And this dude, he's a contemptible person. He is angry. Let's see what he does. He will turn back. and He will vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He's ticked. And he's going to take it out against the Jews in Jerusalem. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Remember, he is a master deceiver. He's going to find some of the Jewish people inside of Israel who are going to favor him. And so he's going to lavish them with gifts as he destroys their system. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress, and he will abolish the daily sacrifices. He's going to destroy the city of Jerusalem, He's going to sacrifice a pig on the altar, and in fact, every single month on his birthday, I think it's the 25th day of the month, he requires that they sacrifice a pig in his honor. He is going to, establish, he's going to erect a statue to Zeus in the Holy of Holies, which is called the abomination that causes desolation. Because he's ticked. And what is he going to do? He's going to use flattery and intrigue to get some of the Jewish people to side with him, But there will also be a group of people who will resist him because they know he's wrong. So the Jewish people will be divided. Now, those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. We'll see what this is in a moment. Um, Let's go back. Some of the wise will stumble. So that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Now, these are the abominations that Antiochus is going to um, perform on the Jewish people. All daily sacrifices he abolished, he banned circumcision. If you can believe this, some of the Jewish people back in the 160s BC were reversing their circumcisions because they wanted to be Greeks, not Jews. He commanded the copies of the law be burned, and he desecrated the temple. He erected an altar to Zeus and offered a pig on the altar. We have the exact date of that, because that's when it started, the revolt. He favored renegade Jews. He rewarded them very highly. He forbade Jews to celebrate their festivals. No more Passover, no more Pentecost. He plundered and burned the city of Jerusalem and took many women and children as slaves. He is the epitome of the enemy of the Jewish people. And his act by sacrificing pigs on the altar and erecting a statue to Zeus in the Holy of Holies is called the abomination that causes desolation. This man is important because he is the prototypical evil person throughout Jewish history And he is the best human example of what the coming Antichrist will be like one day. But, and it goes this way. In the 36th verse, it's gonna be talking about the king. It's talking about Antiochus IV. Epiphanes means, by the way, he he named himself this, I am the illustrious one. That's what he called himself. But now, at this point, it's gonna start talking about a king that no longer fits anything we know about Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And it's talking in language that is way beyond human. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. Now, the historical figure of Antiochus sets the stage for the two comings of the Messiah. That's why he's so important. Antiochus IV Epiphanes is the person in human history whose evils are going to result in the preparation for Jesus' first coming. And Antiochus IV Epiphanes' evils is the prototype for the person who will usher in Jesus' second coming. That's why this man is so important. What did he usher in? When Jesus came the first time, the Bible tells us that he came at just the perfect time. He says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that he might receive, that we might receive the full rights as sons. At just the right time in human history, ordained by God, God sent his son. But it was Antiochus IV Epiphanes that made everything ready for God's son to come. God used this extraordinarily evil man to prepare the way for the perfect time for Jesus to come. What happened when Jesus came? First of all, there was a universal language. Most of the people in the Mediterranean world Even though by Jesus' time it was dominated by Rome, they spoke Greek. There was a common language. There was a great leader in place who was uh, Caesar Augustus in Rome who brought about a huge, many-hundred-year period of peace. There was peace. There was a single language. And people that never appeared in the Old Testament and institutions and groups that never occurred in the Old Testament were now present when Jesus came on the earth. Here's what they are. Out of what Antiochus did, the Jewish people rose up in revolt in what's called the Maccabean Revolt. And it's out of the Maccabean Revolt, that's depicted by the people on the left, they won against Antiochus and the Syrians, expelling them from the country, and they rededicated the temple that had been defiled. That's called Hanukkah. That's where the Jewish feast of Hanukkah comes from the Festival of Lights, around 165 B.C. And then the people who had defeated the Syrians now set up a brand-new dynasty from the Maccabean family. It's called the Hasmonean dynasty. But here's the problem. They became kings, but they are not from the tribe of Judah. And they took to themselves the high priesthood, but they were not in line to be high priests. So now the leaders of Israel for a period of 100 years were Jewish people who called themselves kings, but they were not from David's family, and they called themselves high priests, though they were not from the family that should have been the high priests. So what are Jewish people going to do? Jewish people who believe in the law of God are going to resist that because they said, no, our king can only come from the tribe of Judah, and our high priests must come from the specific part of the family of Levi. And these kings did not. So they opposed these kings. But other people supported these kings. And the ones who supported them became called the Sadducees. And the people who opposed them became called the Pharisees. And these two fought against each other for the next 100 years until the Romans took over in 63 B.C. So now you have these two groups that are there in place when Jesus is here on earth, the Sadducees and the Pharisees who came out of what Antiochus IV did. And also... The synagogue. Never once is there one word about the synagogue in the Old Testament, but then when you get into the New Testament, there it is on almost every page. The synagogue was started by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were not priests, but they became teachers of the law. They are the rabbis. And then they had the oral law, which they accused Jesus of not following. That's called the Mishnah. And their focus now became the study of the law. Remember what it said? When the time had fully come, God gave his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Because it was at the time of Jesus that this study of the law which dominated the Jewish religion was shown to be bankrupt by Jesus. And not only was it shown to be bankrupt, he said, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. So now the law is fulfilled. So it was Antiochus IV Epiphanes whose evils set the scene for everything that, that was the undergirding of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ when he first came to this earth. And then, of course, what Antiochus IV did. um, These are the words of Jesus now. Jesus was asked about the future, and these are what he said. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. So Jesus is asked by his disciples, what will happen in the future? And Jesus said, the future will unfold... And it will unfold when one day an abomination of which Daniel spoke and of which Antiochus the Epiphanes IV, the he started. That will signal the end. The tribulation period followed by the second coming of Jesus. Do you see? This one historical character, by what the evils that he did, he set the scene for the perfect time for Jesus to enter our world. And this evil man is the, the, the type of which the Antichrist one day will be the fulfillment, signaling the second coming of Jesus. That's why he's so important. And so we end with our important question, so what? You just had a history lesson and I hope I didn't put you all to sleep. If I did, I'm sorry. Try reading the 11th chapter yourself. See if you can get through that, Uh, it's it's crazy. So what? Let me end with this, if I can. I went online and I I, I wrote in uh, the history of the future, and this is what I found. I don't know what it's talking about, I never looked at this site, but I thought, there's this great big dot, this red dot, and guess what's inside that red dot? Sheridan, Wyoming. So that means we're in the centerpiece of the history of the future. I don't know, whoever said this, they they think we are. And I thought, you are. You see, the the, the truth of of God's holy word is that there is a future, but that future is known by God and he's got the whole world in his hands. And so often, especially with what's going on in our world now, Christians are living in fear and I'm gonna say, no, 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 God knows the future. And it's good. The end is good. There may be hard times, yes. But nothing surprises our God. If he can predict the future history so accurately, he knows what's going on. Because he does have the whole world in his hands. Of all people in our planet that should be able to live with peace, it should be us. If there's anyone that should not live in fear, it should be us. Because though there might be, as I said, hard times, we know who holds the future. It is our God. And his plan is perfect. And it is working out in perfect order. Also, he's got an algorithm. He's got an amazing algorithm. Um, We we have seen how that algorithm worked out perfectly when God prophesied the first coming of Jesus. And why should we think that that algorithm is not going to work out perfectly when he comes again? There's no reason to suspect that.
1: And God is not
0: surprised by evil, nor should we be. Because actually, God believes that the best way that you conquer evil is through the cross. He ultimately conquered evil when he died on the cross for our sins, defeating death. When he walked out of the grave, he, he changed everything for human history. He's not surprised by evil. In fact, he's overcome evil by the cross. And so, Jesus has two comings. He came the first time, the setting for which was provided by the evil machinations of Mr. Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and he's gonna come back again. In after somebody like Antiochus rises up and ushers in the end times, he will return again. And so the words that Christians throughout all of history have said is this word, Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, a, your Bible is stunning. Way too much for us to grasp, but what we can grasp is pretty, pretty amazing. I, I, I'm just stunned at your knowledge of our lives here and how perfect your history is. And You've got the whole world in your hands. I pray that as a result of this history lesson today, your people would be strengthened by your word. We would, our faith would be bolstered by your faithfulness that we would anticipate the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ whenever that should take place. Until then, may we faithfully follow Jesus. It's in his name we pray.